This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You're listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you for the doctors for bringing us through to 11. You've stuck with us now until 12. We're going to talk science. We've got a big show today. We're going to be talking sustainability. We're going to talk about mitochondrial diseases. We're going to talk about the new science party that's uh, cropped up. And we've got a lot of science news for you. In the studio with me is Dr. Ewan. Good morning. Good morning. You well? I am well, thank you. Good to have you back. Dr. Jean, you were just here last week, so. I was. Yep. Good G'day, to have you back Dr. Too. Shane. Happy uh, Mother's Day to everybody. Oh, yes. Yeah. You didn't go with the bacon and eggs breakfast this week? <laughs> no, my, my lovely husband and children made pancakes for breakfast. Pancakes. It was delightful. Yeah. I think the last show I took off was actually Mother's Day a year and a half ago or something. Anyway. I digress. I usually do that when I have to introduce Chris KP. <laughs> Very wise. Very wise. That's, you know, you're under human. There well, are instincts that kick in. You know, <laughs> delay it as long as possible. Anyway, let's get into some news. Dr. Ewan, we'll start with you. What's floating your boat? I'd like to start with a question for Chris or for Shane. Oh, have well. either of you driven across the Nullarbor Plain? No. No. None of, no. This not is yet. No good. Sorry, not oh, yet. Shit. Okay. Not yet. I'll, I'll ask my wife, but I know she's been across the Nullarbor, I think. You so mean in what, a car? I've been across in a, in a plane. Well, <laughs> a, plane, a plane will work as well. What, oh, yeah, did, yeah. What, what did you see? Not much. Uh, yeah, a, 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 no, not a lot of... You notice anything small that changed? Like if you saw a clump of trees, like it was a really big deal. Exactly. Well, so I, I, I was at thirty-seven thousand feet. So, so yeah. null clouds. Abor, null abor means no trees, literally. Okay. And so when you drive across it, it's very open, vast landscape with a few trees. What if I told you one point three million years ago there was tree kangaroos on the Nullarbor Plain, and there was forests? Oh. I assume they were hitchhiking. Oh no, there were forests. <laughs> okay. So my story is about change, and it's looking in an Antarctica actually. And they've just managed to uncover this uh, sediment core, which is really impressive. So it goes from the Eocene about 54 million years ago right through to the Miocene about 12 million years ago. And it's the uh, most intact core going all through that entire time period. And what it allows us to do is actually look at how the environment in Antarctica has changed over that time period, which is really exciting. So we've had cores before, of course, but you know only certain sections and not a complete history going right through. And the other cool thing about this, of course, is it brings in... I think pretty amazing science. So paleontology, climatology, they all work together. So you've got pollen from these cores and you actually look at the different plant species that appear through this record through time. Mm. And so what these uh, researchers, including Ulrich Sosman <coughs> and his colleagues have managed to do is actually look at this um, transition of different vegetation types right through Antarctica. So about 54 million years ago, uh, yeah, we had sort of forests, subtropical forests. It was about 16 degrees, so a lot warmer than it currently is right now. And then the habitat transitioned quite considerably. So the temperature dropped by about 6 degrees and all of a sudden it converted to coniferous forests, so very different forests to what you would see compared to, say, a tropical forest with palm trees. Mm-hmm. Then obviously moss came in, and that changed again, and then it got colder and colder and eventually ended up with glaciers. So it's tracked the progress of environmental change right throughout Antarctica, and this is really exciting because we can actually learn a lot about Earth in general from this core, now, of course, we can't extrapolate because it's one core. So yeah. you can't talk about the whole Earth using one sediment <laughs> core. But it's pretty exciting. I think it's, I guess the other interesting part about the story is what it might mean for climate change. Okay. So we've seen Antarctica in some ways go the reverse in sense of going from warm to cold and what happened with that. Well, now, of course, we're seeing with climate change, of course, things are getting a lot warmer. The ice sheets are breaking up. So the question is what's going to happen next? Mm. So I think it's really interesting science. It, it, one of the things I love, and we've had quite a few Antarctic guests on here over the years, is that Whatever we do anywhere else in the world, sooner or later you can detect it 
in Antarctica, which That's I think right. is, is great as well. The show, and sometimes it's you know months, years mm. yep. to get there, but you do see it eventually. Which is so it is a it is a good um, canary in the coal mine. You know, although I think the canary's long since dead. <laughs> They're um, very cold. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, no, I meant in ter- <laughs> I meant in terms of what we're doing to the planet. Okay. Yeah, sure, that's yeah. right. I'm saying uh, a canary in Canary just uh, <laughs> stop yeah, singing. That's for sure. Yeah, canary in a snuggie. <laughs> yeah, so it is, it, it's it's fascinating watching what happens. It's amazing science. Yeah. Dr. Jen. Right, so big picture climate. I'm going small picture. I want to talk about fat Labradors. Oh, yeah. Aren't they all? <laughs> well, that's pretty the thing. Much. They can explain. <laughs> they shouldn't be, but people overfeed them. And, you know. Well, but this is the story. You know, poor Labradors, they have this bad reputation for being fat and greedy. And it's true. Labradors are more likely to be obese than any other breed of dog. <laughs> and they tend to be a bit food obsessed, as anyone who's listening who has a lab will know. But it's not their fault. Research <laughs> came out this week from the University of Cambridge to show <laughs> that it's actually in their genes. So they looked at a whole heap of labs and found that 23% of them actually have a deletion in a gene called POMC, which is a gene associated with obesity in humans. And in labs, it's connected to about two kilograms of weight gain plus more begging, more kind of behaviour around, you know, being desperate to scavenge for food. So begging, they've got begging in the genes. Basically, yeah. Or food obsession. It's it's food obsession. And this gene doesn't occur, this gene deletion doesn't occur in other breeds of dogs. And what it does, it affects the production of neuropeptides which are basically the little molecules that nerve cells use to communicate with each other and it means so these uh, molecules are normally there to switch off feelings of hunger after a meal and the labs don't have that so they never feel full they constantly despite having just eaten a meal they don't have that message of oh i'm full now i should Mm. stop eating so these poor labs they're just genetically programmed to eat and eat and eat and other dogs don't have it um and if you look particularly at guide dogs and assistance dogs so we said 23% of the overall population of Labradors have this genetic um, deletion. If you look at guide dogs and assistance dogs, 76% of them have it. So the suggestion is the dogs that end up being well-trained as guide dogs are the ones who have this deletion because they're more easily trained with food rewards. So it's, it's, you know, it's not their fault. And I mean, of course, it's, you know, owners can still, um, uh, you know, avoid looking at those big goopy brown eyes that are begging for food and (laughs) say, no, you've had enough. That's kind of Um, Gattaca, isn't it? Like if you're, if you're a Labrador. You get your gene test. Sorry, pal, you can't be a guide dog. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have the gene. But, but I'll eat. I'll eat. No, yeah. sorry. But sorry. it's interesting too, isn't it, that, that, that along, you know, as, as we've been selectively, you know, selecting these animals to breed from, we're getting the ones that will respond to, yeah. to training easily. And what we're essentially doing is building There's in really interesting yeah. bar jars. research yeah, about absolutely. dogs and humans. And people have even argued that dogs have manipulated humans through history as well. So yeah. it's a two-way exchange. Mm. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. Mm. You know, so next time you see a fat lab, just give a little pat on the back and say, it's, it's in your genes, mate. It's okay. Okay. We understand. Yeah. Well, years ago, I used to show our Siberian Huskies, and I remember this guy who was helping me once. He came up to me and he said, well, the training's going well, but a bit of work to do. And I said, yeah, well, you know, it's only a young puppy. He goes, no, I'm talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, okay, I'm kind of getting that. Uh, hmm. Anyway. Huh. Chris KP. Um, I, I wanted to dive into the brain. Uh, there was a, a nice study that came out of uh, a whole bunch of science, quite a, li- a large list actually from um, University of California in Berkeley, who have done some really interesting mapping of how the brain, uh, how the brain is triggered by words. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially they dumped people in MRI machines and they got them to listen to, uh, you know, to, to whole pieces, like it would be a piece of stand-up comedy or a story being told or whatever, and they would map how the brain would light up at particular points. Now, of course, the way the brain responds to words is part, partly depends on what form they're in. Are you writing them, reading them, saying them, hearing them? Mm-hmm. So there's a, mm-hmm. obviously if you're hearing them, then you're, you know, the ordinary parts of your brain are triggered, etc. But they also found that there were other parts of the brain that would light up as well, and they were making different associations. So one of the things they found that was quite common is that words like um, like mother and wife would uh, trigger sections of the brain that were also associated with houses and, and location. And, really? And, yeah, for example. And there were a whole bunch of these. And what was intriguing was that it seemed to be reasonably common across lots of different people. Now, I don't know how far they pushed the cultural boundary or, or, um, or, or lifestyles, so there may be differences there. But, yeah, they were finding that there are patterns to this. This is There are sections that people seem to have in common. And in my mind, I think this is intriguing because you sort of think, you know, when you hear a word, what it means on one level is the same for everybody. Hmm. But, of course, there's a lot of grey area hmm. around that. And the brain, it seems like your brain's going, <clears throat> OK, I know you said the word duck, <laughs> and I know what that means, but that could have that. At least all this is one ready for the next bit, whether that means get yeah. your head out of the way or there's a small water bird or are you hungry? Or yeah. what rhymes yeah. with. Exactly. Yes. exactly. Yeah. No, Shane, that's only you. Well, maybe, but we all have different experiences. Yeah. The man, the yeah. man so, yeah. yes, and what, I, what is great about this is that you can, in fact, you can, well, obviously you can read the paper, it's in nature, <laughs> if you're into that kind of thing. Uh, but you can also, there's a really nice, somewhat explanatory video on YouTube. I'll, I'll chuck something on Twitter about it but basically there's a really nice place where you can see these things lighting up and get a few examples but mm-hmm. yeah it's an insight into how your brain I think prepares for what to do with something mm-hmm. once it's got a taste of what's coming yeah. out. And, and how it's prepared so I mean we often talk about the influences of the societies we grow up in and this kind of is almost like the, the hard proof that that is actually there, it's real, it's happening and and you don't have a choice No that's right. That's, yeah. that's the disturbing part of it, it yeah. it's, your brain is doing this automatically because it's pre-prepared. Yeah and it's smarter mm-hmm. than you <coughs> Much smarter <laughs> Some of our parts. Um, Now, I'm not sure if uh, you saw this this week, guys, but um, three new Earth-sized planets were discovered nearby. Um, So, you know, this this is almost... I remember years ago when this first happened, exoplanets, and people were like, oh, wow, there's, there's other star systems out there that have planets. And we went from this idea that ours is really unique... You know, it's probably the only one in the galaxy, you know, hundreds of millions of stars, no, 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 just ours, to, well, they're bloody everywhere. Yeah. You know, and we've, <laughs> we've made this transition, you know, which is really interesting over, over just over a decade. And, but this one is interesting because it's, um, it's one that's been found around, uh, one of these dwarf stars. So these are really dim, sort of small stars. So think, think sort of Jupiter, but, um, you know, so about a tenth of the size of the sun. So Jupiter sort of size. They're really dim, but they're still a star. So they're still operating as a star. And what that means is we can find things that are smaller and dimmer around these stars and do a lot more on them. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're looking at something like our sun that's just bright, super bright. When you're looking at that that's 40, 50, 100 light years away, it kind of obscures the whole thing. You know, you're looking into a headlight there and someone's, someone's got a match and you're trying, you know, you just can't do it. High beam. So, high beam. So basically, um, this is from the University of Legion, Bel- Belgium and a guy named Mikhail Gillen and he, he published this in Nature on the 2nd of May. And the reason this is interesting is because it's the first time we've found one of these really close by. Um, we've seen this sort of stuff before, but it's so far away that we can't do anything with our, mm. our sort of optical telescopes. Mm. 
This is close enough. It's only 39 light years. So if you're thinking, Round folks, the corner. you know, switch on your torch, <laughs> wait 39 years, how far has it gone? Not that far. Um, you know, it's, it's a damn, damn long way away. But, but relative to, relative to interstellar distances, it's literally in our ballpark. And the reason why it's so exciting is because that means with a dim star and these planets around that dim star, there's a reasonable chance we could actually do some sort of spectroscopic type analysis of these planets to see if they have atmospheres, if they made them and so forth. So that's starting to get into the realm of us determining what's there. I mean, I think it's it's interesting to note that, you know, we look at things like Pluto recently, you know, we had to actually send something there to really get get a look, but Pluto's a long way out. Mm. These planets are really close, so they're, they're, they're bathed in, in their sun's light, mm. which gives us an opportunity to do things. I do love the um, the year on these planets, though, so I'm not sure if you've had a look at this, but um, the the year on um, <clears throat> the two most inner, inner planets, so there's three of them, um, is just a couple of days. So, wow. you know, you kind of, it reminds me of that scene from Spaceballs, you know, that one, that old film where he's going, stop this yeah, thing, yes. we can't stop, we've got to slow down first. And they're all kind of smeared against the walls. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine like the tidal forces of whipping around the star every, every couple of days. The third planet's a bit different. Um, that's sort of further out and that's sort of, they're not sure yet on that one. It's probably, you know, something like 70-ish days. And what you've got to look at is in those ranges, is it too hot? Mm. Well, it probably is. But if the planets aren't rotating, there might be a uh, region halfway between light and dark, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, on the, on the, region. Region. the Terminator, <laughs> as we call it on this, you know, the Terminator. And, and that's sort of, you know, a bit warm, a bit cold. And there might be the opportunity to have liquid water and life there. Mm. So mm. that's, <coughs> excuse me, it is, it's an interesting um, series of things. And I think looking at them, in totality, once we, in 2018, launched the James Webb Telescope, these are the sorts of candidate planets that people will be pointing that at because mm. it will it will have the capability to say, okay, I'm actually bigger and bad enough to actually look at these things and see what they're made of, whereas Hubble's not quite there. So, it's um it's a good it's a good find. So interesting stuff. Three, triple. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. In the studio with us now is Penny Bonder now. Penny is the founding chair and primary author of the U.S. Green Building Council Committee for Lead Commercial Interiors Rating System. She's also, also the author of uh, Sustainability Matters and is a fellow of the U.S. Green Building Council and the American Society for Interior Designers. Penny, welcome to Melbourne and welcome to RRR. Thank you so much. Lovely to be here. Now, we, we hear a lot about the sort of the greening of industry and so of, of the building industry and so forth. And some of us work in buildings that in a sense have been greened, but have become so artificial. We hate being in them. Uh, I mean, tell us, tell us about this, this sort of balance that you must get to where you make buildings sustainable, but still habitable. How do you, how do you achieve that? Well, I, I think a building in order to be sustainable must be habitable. Mm. That's, that's a bottom line. You can't, you can't, you can't do, do it other than that way. And, and there's five areas of concern when we talk about buildings. We have, um, the site that they're located on, the way they use water, hopefully efficiently, mm-hmm. uh, certainly energy efficiency and carbon emissions are a huge part of it. Uh, the, 
the health of the materials within the building, in other words, keeping toxics out of the building, and then indoor environmental quality. How how healthy is this building that we're in? What mm. is like? What's the air that we're breathing? What about our thermal comfort? You know, even things like ergonomics. So it's a balance. It's a huge balance between many um, uh, concerns that make a building uh, good for the planet, but also very good for the people. Mm-hmm. My particular area of interest is actually in the in the toxics uh, area of materials, and I'm currently very privileged to be the the president of um, an organization in the United States called the Healthy Building Network, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what it. Our title is exactly what we do. We try to promote um, health concerns within buildings. So one of the big areas that you would think about would be um, lead in that's leaching out of materials. And we're all shocked by what's happened. I, I think it's worldwide known in Flint, Michigan, mm. where lead went into mm. the water and yeah. all these children yeah. are you know, now at, at great risk, great health mm. risk for the rest of their lives. But... Most of us assume that most paints are lead free. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's, that's not true. Right, right. Um, there's a company that the largest, uh, producer, manufacturer of lead pig, pig, pigments for paints is actually in Toronto, wow. Canada. Wow. Mm. And they're exporting hundreds of, of, um, tons of lead paint to uh, all over the world to, to manufacturers all over the world. Yeah, it's shocking. Jane. So, Penny, does this mean you're up against some really big lobby groups who oh. aren't particularly happy <laughs> that you're pointing out uh, these materials aren't very good for us? There, we are, we are constantly fighting the lobbyists. Mm. Yeah, I guess related with that question, uh, how many buildings are, you know, toxic free, so to speak? I guess, you know, how, how widespread is this issue and how bad is it? So, we all work in buildings, most of us, most of the time. So, how many buildings are actually good and how many are not? Well, I think if you're in the, in the first world, you know, if you're in, in Australia, if you're in the US, uh, if you're in, um, Europe, um, you're, it's, it's pretty, you can be pretty sure that you're not having lead paint on your windowsills and, and in, on your furniture for your children to chew on and ingest. If you're in Asia, not so much. Mm. In fact, some some research that's just been done by the Healthy, Healthy Building Network has uncovered um, statistics showing that children are tend in 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 uh, Asia in third world countries, especially in China, are uh, five to ten percent more lead in their blood than the children in Flint, Michigan, have. Hmm. Oh wow. From that, you know, from that horrible water disaster. Yeah, that's shocking. So, so Penny, if that's the case, then why is that the case? Is it because it's cheaper to make pigments in this way? Is it just a habit we've got? Is it some kind of other government incentive? Why does it keep happening if it's clearly not good? Uh, lead paint was so popular for all those years because it is performs really right. well. Okay, mm. you know, it's good at being paint. <laughs> it, it's very good at being paint. It's easy to put up. It's easy to clean, and it. Uh, has a very long life. Mm. So, um, yeah. 
That's yeah, I've got a mad headed joke in here somewhere, but I'm <laughs> trying to find it. But, um, I mean, there's, there's other elements of buildings though that are particularly problematic though as well, aren't there? I mean, I know when, when you talk about health and you talk about people's health and you go into some of these buildings and they're surrounded by white walls and white lights and, I mean, what about that sort of stuff? Because in, in terms of long term health for individuals, that's got to be pretty damaging over a protracted period if you're in one of those homogenized style environments. Oh, we've all spent too much time in those, haven't mm. we? <laughs> um, yes, and that's part of, um, we have studies and I, and of the productivity levels of, uh, that go up when you put people in rooms that have, for example, a view, I keep, my mm. eye keeps going that way because that's, because <laughs> yeah. you all, radio there's listeners, there's light over yeah. there. Mm. So we when we have distance viewing, when we have exposure to natural light, we just do better. Mm. And there are many, mm. many statistics that prove that. And so one of the goals of a green building is to provide, um, access to daylight with good views to at least 90% of the occupants from a seated position isn't enough okay. to just be able to walk over to the you know um, to the lunch room mm, yeah from yeah, from where yeah. you're sitting all day having access to natural light is vital to your to your best level of productivity so, so when, when we we know these things now these are well mm-hmm. established how far do you think it is before we start seeing legal ramifications of organizations that don't you know, give this to people because it seems as though if you're putting someone in an environment that you know is detrimental to their health and productivity, but their health, there's got to be a point where this starts biting. Is that yeah. is that on the horizon? Do you think? Well, it depends where you are in the world. Right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for example, in um, Scandinavian countries, they are far ahead of most other places mm. in terms of regulating this passing laws and regulations that prohibit certain you know practices like the, like the lead paint or that pass regulations where certain things are mandatory mm. you know uh indoor air quality you know the the emissions that we that come out from formaldehyde out of our carpets, out of our you know the the uh, flame retardants that um, that cause uh, 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 injuries to lungs to breathing. You know, in the Scandinavian countries, people are are more assured that the government is watching out for them. In places that, in certain countries in Europe, Germany, for example is way ahead of the US um in in terms of of regulating and and making it um giving not only not only regulating but giving incentives mm. to to yeah. companies that, and and manufacturers and contractors yeah. so uh, in terms of green buildings i think it's fascinating i guess i'm interested in how much you work with people uh who work in the area immediately outside the building and so uh, cities and people are moving to cities in greater numbers um <coughs> at the moment and we also now know from research that cities support huge amounts of biodiversity often threatened biodiversity we know right. that green spaces 
um, psychologically benefit us. Um, mm-hmm. It has health effects, health benefits for just having green uh, parks around you. But there's a real kind of, I guess, push to um, make buildings and cities that accommodate more biodiversity and yes. green spaces much better than we currently have. So how much do you sort of work with the people who are, I guess, looking at the building itself inside, but also people immediately outside, and so that we can kind of have these cities, I guess, that have these wonderful buildings that you're describing, but also, um, I guess, communities, if you like, that provide all these benefits for biodiversity as well as the buildings themselves. Yes, and and one of the one of the um, really founding principles of green buildings uh, that we've been working on for the last twenty years, or that I have, other people longer than that, is that it takes it takes a team, it takes a big mm. team to achieve the goals, the the health goals, the productivity goals for not only the people in the buildings, but as you say, for the communities. So when you, I've only been in Melbourne for three weeks, so I'm far from an expert. But as I walk around the city, as I drive around the city, I really am impressed with what I see in terms of not only green spaces, and and you have the topography for that, not only that, but also the uh, diversity of building types i mean um from ugly to from, <laughs> well no i wasn't going to say that um you know and i was just i mentioned i was in tasmania i was there yesterday actually and walking through hobart mm, you gorgeous. really you really see what you're talking about because there are um beautifully um uplifting spaces and then there's mm. architecture that you go what were they thinking yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you know and every every city every country has that i'm not yeah. picking on hobart but it does take from from the developer the land developers from the landscape people the architects the contractors the uh engineers the uh designers the the materials manufacturers mm. who are making Things that are beautiful and that are restorative, mm-hmm. you know, and that will maintain their beauty. They won't ugly out. They'll maintain their beauty so that we're not constantly having to go, we need to rip that building down. Let's have buildings that last for hundreds mm-hmm. and hundreds mm-hmm. of years and continue to make us um feel good about being in them and around them yeah penny just one final question before i let you go um it seems to me as though you know when we make this case that you know you you run a small series of trees through through the architecture of a building and you you know you weave that through the productivity of workers goes up are you struggling to get that that mindset across with a lot of groups it it seems a logical sort of extension of the way we should be working into the future but i still keep seeing these boxes being put up everywhere is is there a shift happening or, or are big corporations still saying no that's nonsense we don't believe that at all I'm I'm sorry to say but the what rules the the outcomes is really the dollars mm. you know um short term though short term yeah. <laughs> right yeah, not the long term productivity right. goals yeah right and so you're going to find pushback uh, from developers, the people who put the money into the buildings. You're going to find pushback to go to these, um, uh, to the, to the, uh, methods that they need to go to in order to make the restorative, um, high performance buildings that we're talking mm. about. But, you're also starting to see some pushback from people saying, I don't want to work for you. 
Mm-hmm. I, you know, mm-hmm. I don't want to live in your development. You know, where my organization, Healthy Building Network, is starting to work with affordable housing um, uh, developers in in the states because. W- we're finding that people aren't happy anymore mm. and are 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 drifting toward the buildings that are going to give them the best uh possible lifestyle that that they can get and the healthiest yeah and healthy is really becoming the big driver i yeah, think yeah look i think i think that's the way it should go and it's great talking to you about this and i should say you should just stay in australia i think we'd like to just keep you here because we need more we'll have a word to border force penny bonda thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us we hope you enjoy the rest of your time in australia and um keep up the good work i know i will and thank you all so much penny bonda is the uh, board of directors chair elect of the healthy building network in the united states and here visiting um well just looking around at their great buildings and not so great ones triple Uh, we have in the studio Sophia French. She is a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne working in mitochondrial research in the genetics theme of the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Sophia, thanks for coming in and welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Now, um, first of all, let's start with the mitochondria. Before we get to the disease part, what does the mitochondria do in our bodies? So it makes all of the energy for your entire body. It's often referred to as the powerhouse of the cell. It just kind of sits inside every single one of your cells that makes you up and makes all the energy that you need to function. So as you can expect, when it doesn't work properly, that's not very good. Okay, so we have this in every, literally every cell of our body. Yeah, you've got lots of them in every cell of your body. Okay. You need a lot of energy in order to function. So they make a particular form of energy called ATP, um, leading to the wonderful joke, like, how much does it cost to buy a mitochondria? Ah, oh, ATP. Um, <laughs> I think I I have the wrong background for that. Finally, us biologists come to the fore, Dr. Shane. Yeah, there's a lot of people in the cars right now going, what the? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But essentially, so it doesn't make it fresh every time. There's like a form that isn't active and then mitochondria turns it into an active form and every day it makes sort of 37 kilograms of that so Hmm. they do a lot and they make kilograms yeah that explains so much about me because <laughs> you don't use the 37 kilograms. No, yeah, yeah, not as much as I should. No. Now, in, in terms of when we talk about the mitochondria not doing its job properly or being, you know, diseased in some way, what, so what's happening there? It seems as though uh, the way you describe it, if it didn't work, I'd just fall down and die. Yeah, essentially. So when we talk about... (laughs) I mean, your mitochondria probably won't stop working suddenly. Mm -hmm. That's generally not what they do. Um, But if they're when I talk about them being diseased or broken, they're often only broken a very little bit. So there's sort of five big protein complexes in a row. And proteins, they're things that make up things like your hair and nails, but they also do all of the making of things inside your body. And so in the mitochondria, they clump together and they help you make ATP. Um, and there's five of them all sort of within each of your mitochondria many, many times over. And sometimes one of those protein complexes, a tiny bit of that won't work. Okay. And that can result in a huge range of disorders. So like very small issues with mitochondria um, have been implicated in things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So mm. late onset kind of neurological disorders, um, larger 
messing up of the proteins uh, is associated with a lot of early onset disorders. So things like a disease called Lee syndrome, mm-hmm. which is a neurodegenerative disorder that occurs in early childhood, often after a viral infection where the children might not be having as much food as normal, might be requiring more ATP. And so the mitochondria get really stressed out about that and then that extra stress leads to them not working so well. It results in seizures in the child and typically death before the age of five. Wow. So these are pretty serious disorders. Mm. Um, the most severe form that's been characterized is a form called fatal infantile lactic acidosis, which basically means your child gets very sick and then dies very early on. And the big issue we're facing is that there's no current um, treatments for mitochondrial disorders, certainly no current effective treatments. Mm. And they can also right. be caused by a lot of different things within your genes. So when right. I talk about like mitochondrial disorders, I'm talking about inborn errors, so things you have in your genes that aren't working so well. There are also secondary mitochondrial disorders, which happen if you're exposed to something that's really bad for your mitochondria. Now, these seem to me to fall into this class of what we call rare genetic disorders. I mean, is is that right? And if, if true, it must mean that, you know, when your kids are sick, I mean, kids get sick, it must be very hard to diagnose that you have a problem with your mitochondria. I mean, I don't remember 20 years ago someone ever saying, yeah, yeah, you know, the child's got a problem with their mitochondria. This seems fairly new, difficult to diagnose. Is that right? Yeah, it's certainly difficult to diagnose. Um, I'm not in the section of our lab that works on optimising diagnoses. Mm. I believe you had a colleague of mine on um, a couple of months ago who works on that. Uh, I'm focusing more on developing treatments. But, yeah, it's really hard to diagnose. Mm. It affects about 1 in 5,000 live births, which is, I believe, more common than Huntington's, but much less known about. And so we do things, so I occasionally volunteer with the Australian Mitochondrial Disease Foundation who fund a lot of this research and they're absolutely fantastic. I love them so much. Um, Mm. And we'll do things like go to GP conferences and talk about that and have patient information days for people who are affected by mitochondrial disorders but might not know anyone else who is. Mm. Um, And I find things like that really important. Now, in in your work, you're looking at uh, some of the ways in which we might start treating this. There's a lot of modelling involved. Tell us a bit about what you're up to. Yeah, so I'm looking at potential treatments for mitochondrial disorders and I can't really go too much into detail because I haven't published anything yet. Oh, and that old chestnut. No one listens to this show. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I'm looking at a lot of different model systems. So when we talk about disorders and developing treatments, we can't just go straight into people and go, take this, it might work. Mm. That mm. is very unethical and very illegal. <laughs> um, <laughs> so what we do instead is we'll often have mouse models of disorders. So I'm... I'm very happy with the ethical requirements that the Murdoch Children's has, and like I realise that animal studies can sure. often be fraught with tension. But I really want to say, like, as someone who's predominantly vegan as well, like this is uh, mm. these are this is research I'm really happy with doing because I genuinely believe these animals are treated in a really ethical and positive way. Well, I have, um, to, I have to say, Sophia, just on that, it's very rare that we have researchers coming in and put that position clearly mm. to us, which is mm. which is part of the reason there is a problem with the use of animals in various laboratories because very few researchers have the courage to come in and, and plant that flag and say, well, this is why I'm okay with it. So, yeah. you know, well done for doing that because Absolutely. we... we uh, actually, I don't remember the last time someone <laughs> no, did I, I was just going to say, you know, I remember 23 years. It. So it, it is important, I think, that, that you do that. Um, yeah, definitely. Because I, I will yeah. often get asked because I talk sort of more generic terms about scientific research yeah. and animal testing to a lot of different groups, including debaters who are very willing to disagree with you and tell you that you're being a terrible <laughs> job. <person>. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Um, and so I think it is really important to just sort of explain that I am really happy with how they're treated. I'm happy with um, mm. how the animals are euthanized when it comes to it and the boundaries we set on that. And I think in Australia we have really, really good ethical requirements.
evidence. Like I certainly read studies from the US and I go, oof, how did you get ethics for that? Oh, that's yeah. not good. Um, but moving back to my research, uh, we have a really good mouse model for this disorder and it's one of the, um, talking specifically about Lee syndrome, complex one disorders. Um, and it's one of the best mouse models for these disorders. And so I'm both looking at the treatment in these mice. So I supplement their mm-hmm. diet with a particular compound and see if they get any better. Um, but I also look at it in human cell lines because while mice are a really good way to look at how drugs work in the body and how the disease works in the body, mice are not people. Yeah. Uh, and it is important to look at people as well. And so we have human cell lines that we also investigate and see what effect the um, drug that I'm working on has on the biochemical level. So looking within the cell and saying, does this actually make the cell act any healthier than if it doesn't have the drug? And is the approach there to have a, have a drug that deals with all mitochondrial disease or do you have to pick a type? You know, is <laughs> it, I mean, it seems though it's the same problem everywhere but different causes. Yep. Is your approach to go after the sort of, you know, the root cause of one type of mitochondrial disease or try and help everyone with mitochondrial disease? I mean, we'd love to help everyone with mitochondrial disease. The particular drug I'm looking at has had promising um, research published in mitochondrial myopathy, so looking at muscle disorders in mitochondrial disease. Um, I'm looking at predominantly neurological disorders, so these children, when I was talking about the seizures, that's a neurological disorder. It affects Mm. the brain. Um, And so... Yeah, I'm looking at a particular type of mitochondrial disease, but when I put it together with the work that everyone else has done, we might have evidence that shows it can help everyone. I'm just making yeah. a small building block in the big tower of science. Mm, sounds good. <laughs> to what extent is it an option to screen for these conditions? Um, well, exome sequencing, I don't believe, is supported by the Victorian government in a sort of like Medicare kind of way. Right. I don't really understand the Australian healthcare system. I'm from New Zealand. We just kind of do whatever we want. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you're in a country of four million people, you just kind of YOLO a lot. And when you don't have to pay for a military. That's yeah, right. How yeah, much money you guys save? Uh-huh. Yeah. So great. We're so small and like no one wants to invade us. It's wonderful. <laughs> Keep tipping a great yeah. <laughs> We just bought a whole lot of subs and then not to travel. I mean, they've got to go somewhere. We've got to park them somewhere. We've got to park them somewhere. Let's park them all yeah. around New Zealand. And you guys have got some good stuff. Yeah. Sure. yeah. yeah. Um, so within Victoria, and like that's the predominant way that we want to look at the disorders. Because if you can take someone's exome, which is all of the um, coding parts of the genome, so all yeah. the bits that matter, yeah. I say hesitantly, knowing a lot of people that work on the non-coding parts, that's all right. but the most important parts, really. Um, and you can just kind of screen and look for a gene that is mutated in a way that we know that causes disease. Mm. But it is really tricky because some of these mutations will be entirely new in the patient. Um, when you're looking at families that have uh, a long history of mitochondrial disorder, it's a lot easier to sort of find the causative gene mm. and then screen for it. You're looking at things like pre-implantation diagnosis mm-hmm. and maybe um, if the family doesn't want to go down that route, just uh, advising palliative care because like palliative care is available. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Look, it's, it's very interesting, interesting stuff and I have to say whenever I hear the term diagnostic odyssey, I think, <laughs> gee, you know, this is something yeah. that I hope as a parent I'm never on and I really feel for those who are on it. So keep up the good work, Sophia, and thanks so much for coming in and talking to us. Thank you. Sophia Frentz is a PhD student at the University of Melbourne in the Murdoch Children's Research Institute working on mitochondrial disorders. 102.7. Now, we have a uh, member of the Victoria, uh, well, the Victorian coordinator of the Science Party, Luke James, in the studio. Luke, welcome. Thank you. It's good to have you in. Now, the Science Party, how did you guys come up with that name? 
Well, we uh, actually just rebranded last year to the name Science Party. We were originally called the Future Party, but um, we found that, uh, you know, we, we have a lot of scientifically minded people in the party and our sort of core ideologies are more what you'd find in the science world uh, since we're very much for evidence-based policy rather than uh, uh, sort of the... Um, backroom sort of policy that is created by many of the other parties in Australia. Uh, so when we were looking at uh, how people reacted to the future, though, I, I personally was surprised to find out some people think that the future is a scary thing. Uh, so we did some mm. testing and uh, uh, found out that science tested a lot better with a lot of people. So we thought, yep, let's, let's lock it in. <laughs> really? It's, it's, it's interesting because it never comes up. But, you know, it's, in, it's interesting that we talk about science and, you know, you're in the room of science people and you, you don't see it in the political space. I mean, it's, you know, in fact, uh, half a, you know, or well, $500 million cut to science is less important than a five-cent increase in petrol prices. I mean, so how, how, do you, how are you going to go against that? I mean, the, the public view, yeah, everyone trusts science when it's about their iPhone, but when, <laughs> when, when it's, it's everything right. else, they don't seem to give a toss half the time. I mean, our listeners are exempt from these comments, so I should say. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> that's the political situation that we're in today, but I don't think that that's how it has to be. And I think uh, even Neil deGrasse Tyson speaks quite frequently about how he thinks there should be more people um, from different walks of life in our representation. I mean, when you look at, uh, as he points out, when you look at the world leaders and party leaders and things like that, you see you know, lawyers, career politicians, ex-businessmen, and that's all there is. Mm -hmm. But when they're trying to represent society, there should be representation of society and that there should be scientists in there and engineers and ex-teachers and people from many different walks of life who actually understand what people are going through in the real world and what matters to people in the real world. So so let's um, grab from you a couple of sort of headline policies that you guys are running with because, uh, and, and we're, we're going to be pretty critical of this because you're using the word science, which is yeah. near and dear to our hearts, and we've been broadcasting this show for a long time. And, you know, a group of cosmetics companies have used that word, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, we go after them for that. So... Tell us what your policies are, and we'll see if you get out of here alive. <laughs> sure thing. <laughs> well, I guess um, the <clears throat> one to focus on would be our science policy, which, uh, and with, with our policy making as well, we have what's called an open source policy uh, ideology. So anyone who thinks that they uh, have found an issue with our policy or found something that should be a policy but isn't is welcome to come to us. And if the evidence backs it up, then we will adopt said policies. Uh, in fact, at the moment... Um, in relation to our science policy, we're in talks with a few industry experts uh, for the in the space industry, and we're actually planning a complete overhaul of our space policy right now, which uh, mm. hopefully will be out sometime in the next week or two. Um, but more specifically, so the the core of our science policy, as it is at the moment, though, is that we would like to see to begin with a doubling in funding for science, particularly for the CSIRO. Uh, so at the moment, I think it's at about $9.2 billion a year, and we'd like to see that double to 18.4 as an initial step. And we would like to see it take up a larger part of the GDP of Australia, not specifically through government funding, but through encouragement of mm. further commercial uh, interest in science and development in Australia. Okay. 
Yeah, I, I guess I'm just curious how you arrived at that figure. So, um, you know, I think it's <coughs> noble definitely to try and aim for more funding. We just certainly need that. Uh, as an example, um, I think the entire Australian Research Council budget for 2015 and 16 is less than a billion dollars, and we just spent $50 billion on submarines. So that's questionable in terms of investment and resources. But, you know, is doubling it even enough? And if it's not enough, why are we not even aiming for higher? So how did you arrive at that figure of doubling the science budget? Yeah, that's a good question. So the target for doubling is just an initial target at the moment. Uh, we think it's what's achievable within, you know, a standard budget framework of four years. But absolutely, we think that it should be a much larger part in the long term of Australia's uh, GDP. We, we think that it should be occupying as much as, you know, five to ten percent, perhaps, just just as a theoretical at this point. But um, yeah, so certainly we would like to see it be a much bigger thing than just double what it currently is. But as for that current target, that is considering what it has been in the past and what it's been cut down to for now, that's getting closer to what it used to be, you know, if you look back 10 to 20 years ago. And um, if uh, also considering the, the kind of economy Australia has and what we can sustain in the short term, because obviously Australia is a very affluent nation and we can afford to do a lot in the scientific industry. Now, Luke, one of the things that jumped out at me immediately when I was looking through some of your policies is that you're pro-nuclear power. Now, if you say pro-fusion... I'm going to say, great, sounds good. Whether you're collecting it via solar panels or the new fusion reactor they're building in Europe, fantastic. But fission, you guys are pro that. How do you justify that position? I mean, I can understand it maybe 20 years ago, um, but now how do you justify that position relative to renewables and the success there? Um, so we're not specifically stating that it... Uh has to be a component of Australia's energy generation future, but uh, we think that more research is certainly worthwhile. Uh, we would we're interested in seeing further research done to get a much clearer picture of what we should be doing in Australia as far as our energy is concerned. So while yes, we're pro nuclear, <coughs> we're pro both fusion and fission. Not specifically that we want to start building plants tomorrow, but uh, we would like to see further research done. I but think is that, is that because you think that the that that um, renewable technologies actually cannot meet our energy needs? Is that the the suggestion? Uh, it's well to to a degree. I think that we don't have the complete picture yet. I think that there's a lot of uh, things with renewable energy, such as rare earth requirements and whether it can actually be scaled up to a population of uh, the size of Australia or larger populations around the world. And so further research, yeah, would be ideal as the first step. But um, we're certainly not... Uh, taking a blanket anti-nuclear stance, as a lot of other groups do, we think that it probably will take some ro- play some role in the, I guess, the slice of the pie in Australia's energy future. Mm. Interesting. Well, hopefully they'll leave it all on the ground and we can use it to generate geothermal. That might be the, <laughs> yeah. the way in which it works. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, we, we've got to finish up, but um, I'm I'm slightly stunned that uh, Science Party is taking that position. But we'll see. Hopefully, the evidence will convince you otherwise as it comes in, as, sure. as you've said. So, well, uh, yeah, as an evidence-based policy, we're certainly yep. open to the evidence-based. Yeah, <laughs> sounds good. Luke, uh, good luck with this uh, new adventure. I hope it uh, goes well. I mean, none of us will argue against there being more science in politics. And even if uh, all you guys ever achieve is is that, I think that's a, that's a win if it highlights the need for science to be out there. So um, I don't envy you the, the task in, in Australian politics of getting somewhere, but thanks for coming in and talking to us. Thanks very much. Luke James is the Victorian coordinator of the Science Party. We're going to have to finish up. Dr Ewan, Dr Jenny, Chris KP, thanks so much. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I was just, you know, sitting back and relaxing. Oh, she's so chilled out. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, even in the science party.
There you go. Uh, we will talk to you again next week. Have a wonderful Sunday. I know it's a bit dreary, but it is Mother's Day. A big, big hello to all the mums and would-be mums and hopefully mums and everyone else who's affected by today because it's not all positive. Until next week, we'll talk to you soon. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.